Hello everyone and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is episode 49, The Byzantine Golden Age, Rise of Romanus. At the end of the last episode, we saw Empress Zoe, the acting regent to the emperor, take control of the empire, defeat her enemies, and restore the faith and dignity to the Byzantines. She defeated the Arabs in Anatolia, and again in Italy. Then she kicked the Bulgars out of Adrianople. She was successful, powerful, and loved by her people. But there were people around her who wanted her gone, and to crown themselves as emperor. But winter was ending, and the war with Bulgaria was far from over. The Romans' swift response shocked Simeon, so the Bulgar Khan spent most of the year 916 in Bulgaria, carrying out small raids along the border. Each raid got a little closer into the empire, and when they made it as far south as Thrace, Empress Zoe retaliated. Just like she did in Adrianople, Empress Zoe assembled a massive army. She split it in half and marched one group north to Bulgaria and sent the second group by boat. This way she could engage the Bulgarians from the south and the north at the same time in a pincer maneuver. No one would escape her this time. This is an important battle, so we'll tell who the key players are here. The admiral in charge of the sea invasion was Romanos Lekapanos, and was of Armenian ancestry. While fighting in battle, he saved Emperor Basil I's life, and was rewarded with a position in the empire. The general marching the army up the coast of the Black Sea was led by Leo Phocas. Leo wasn't born a peasant from a faraway land. He was a nobleman born into one of the most famous Byzantine families in the empire. A third man, John Bogas, was sent far into the stepland to seek the aid of other tribes. They sent word to the Pechenegs, the Magyars, and the Serbs. John Bogas also came from a prestigious family in the Byzantine Empire. With all these pieces working together, the trap was getting set for the Bulgars. All they needed to do now was spring it. But, and there is a but, it didn't work out that way. For starters, the generals didn't like each other and were too prideful to work with one another. It didn't help that the Bulgars got to the Pechenegs first and got them on their side, and the Magyars were too busy fighting the Franks in the west. The only help John Bogas was able to procure was a band of mercenary Pechenegs. This wasn't the entire tribe riding in on horseback like they were hoping to get, but it was a strong army of Pechenegs fighters. And there was another problem. The commanders of this operation didn't like each other. They didn't trust each other, and they wouldn't work with each other. When John Bogas brought his army of Pechenegs mercenaries to the Danube River, 
Romanus refused to let them on his boats, either because he didn't like barbarians or he didn't like John Bogas. Whatever the reason, this was only the first thing to go terribly wrong. Romanus was a stubborn and prideful man who insisted John Bogas bend the knee and accept him as the superior commander. It was an unreasonable thing to demand, especially when he was only an admiral and not the emperor. John Bogas was also prideful and stubborn, but at least he wasn't the one making crazy demands. He was, however, refusing to bend the knee to Romanus. And so, we end up with the Byzantine fleet at the mouth of the Danube River, the Pechenegh army on the north, and the battlefield on the south. It was the dumbest stalemate in history. All they needed to do was ferry the army across and meet the rest of the forces in battle. But no, they stayed there, and nothing happened. Eventually, the Pechenegs realized they weren't going anywhere, nor were they going to get paid any more money from John Bogas. So they slowly broke apart before disbanding entirely. I'm sure there were arguments between the leader of the Pechenegs and John Bogas before the entire thing fell apart. Once the Pechenegs were gone, Admiral Romanus took his fleet and left. He didn't go to the battle like he was supposed to. He returned to Constantinople. It's easier to comprehend how terrible this was by comparing it to something more recent in history. Picture the invasion of Normandy in World War II. Now, imagine right before they stormed the beaches, the commander of the Americans ordering the commander of the British to bow down and recognize him as the superior officer. When the other scoffs at the ridiculous idea, an argument breaks out and they both go their own way. Then the boats leave and no one gets ferried to the beaches of Normandy. Then only half the Allies make it to shore, and they're all massacred by the German machine guns. It may sound ridiculous, and that is because it was ridiculous. Bringing it back to August 20th, 917 CE, there was only one army left to attack the Bulgars, and it was commanded by Leo Focas. And he marched his men into battle assuming there was a giant army of Pechenegs and Byzantine soldiers ready to attack the enemy from the rear. Khan Simeon of Bulgaria also had grand plans for this battle, and he used the classic Punic move of reinforcing and strengthening his two flanks while leaving his center thin. This way he could engage the Romans, and as his center fell back, his two flanks could circle around the enemy, surrounding them on both sides. What happened that day was not what they had planned. Leo Focas attacked the Bulgarians with extreme force and ferocity. He sent all of his men with all of their strength into the center of the Bulgars, and they packed a punch. The weight of the soldiers broke right through the Bulgar line and pushed them back. From the perspective of the Romans, this was great. And from the perspective of the Bulgars, the enemy was falling right into their trap. 
The only thing wrong with the Bulgar plan was the Romans punched through the center a little too quickly and too ruthlessly, killing a lot of men. The Byzantine cataphracts, which are knights on horses covered in armor, hacked and slashed at the Bulgar foot soldiers, killing so many men that the Bulgars retreated. Unfortunately for the Byzantines, they did such a good job smashing the center line that they broke apart as they chased the retreating Bulgarians. And that is when the Bulgar commander sprung his trap. You see, Simeon was watching the entire battle unfold from the hills, where he waited in hiding with his own cavalry. And as he watched the Byzantine cataphracts and soldiers start to break apart as they chased the Bulgarian retreaters, he ordered his own attack. Leading the charge from the front, Khan Simeon galloped down the hill and smashed into the side of the Byzantine army, completely surprising them and mowing them down. There was no defense, no way to fight back. The Bulgars broke into the side of the Romans and killed everyone on their way. This wasn't a battle you could fight your way out of with skill. The Bulgars speared everyone and slashed at them and fired arrows at them. There were no survivors. The few who were lucky enough to be on the far side of the army could see the wave of Bulgars coming and they ran for their lives. As Khan Simeon cut down the Roman soldiers, his horse was struck and killed, and the Khan tumbled over. Even though his horse was dead, Khan Simeon got up and kept fighting. The Romans were completely routed, and they ran for the edge of the Black Sea. Most of the Romans were already dead, but the ones who made it to the ocean were greeted by nothing. There were no ships. The Byzantine fleet was nowhere to be seen. And the ones who survived long enough were also the ones to realize they were betrayed by Admiral Romanus. And now the Bulgar army was cutting its way through the survivors. The only ones who made it away were Leo Phocas and a few of his closest comrades. The rest were left on that beach to die by the cold steel of the Bulgarian swords. Leo Phocas and a few men made it to boats and sailed down the coast of the Black Sea. Around the same time, the terrible news was reaching the capital. Zoe waited in the palace for news of the Bulgarian defeat, only to receive a letter that the Pechenegs disbanded and Romanus abandoned the campaign. She was furious and ordered the arrest of the Armenian as soon as he landed in the ports of Constantinople. Unfortunately for her, it was only the beginning of the bad news. Soon more letters arrived. When she heard about the disastrous defeat in Bulgaria, all hope sank away. Everything was ruined. She sent her best men to that battle, not only her best, but the most men she could muster, and now they were all dead. And all because Admiral Romanus wanted someone to bow before him. She was so mad, mad, angry, but also vulnerable. She was the ruler of the empire during its biggest defeat in living memory, and she was on such a high note before this happened. Romanus was captured by the guards and dragged into prison. 
While she paced back and forth in the royal court, furious and angry, Empress Zoe, regent of Constantine VII, ordered the blinding of Admiral Romanus. She was going to make him pay for his treachery. As guards were dispatched to carry out the order, Romanus' friends in court broke down and pleaded for their friend and commander's life. They begged for mercy, and because of the pressure, Zoe called off the blinding. I'm not sure how close it got, whether the guards had Romanus pinned down or it was just a sentence that was announced for future date and was later cancelled altogether. Needless to say, Romanus was very lucky to survive his failure with all of his appendages intact. Remember how the last episode ended with Zoe being very popular and loved within the Empire? Well, that honeymoon is over. She was not liked at all right now, and she had only one chance at recovering from such a PR scandal. Luckily for her, she was going to get that chance, as Khan Simeon and his army were marching on Constantinople. When Leo Phocas returned to the capital in his little boat, in defeat, he was immediately called to duty. It didn't matter that he lost an entire army to the Bulgars, as it wasn't entirely his fault. There was also no time to investigate the matter further, as the Bulgars had just invaded Adrianople. Again. A second army was mustered together and sent to fight the Bulgarians in Adrianople. But you know what they say about the second army. If they were good enough men, they would have been sent with the first. Everyone was less than the best. But there was no other choice. By the winter of 917 CE, the Bulgars had made it right up to the settlements outside of the Theodosian walls. You could call these the suburbs of Constantinople. And it is here that Leo Phocas and his hastily assembled army engaged Khan Simeon for a second time. Now, we don't have many details, but we do know that it was a disaster. It was so bad that Leo came riding back to the capital with just a few men, while the rest of the army was slaughtered on the battlefield. Now, you might say to yourself, hey, this guy can't catch a break. First, he's abandoned by Romanus, and the second time, he was expected to win a war with recruits. But you can't deny the fact that twice this man was given a massive army, and twice he got every man killed, but managed to somehow escape alive and unharmed. At what point do you suspect that Leo might not be a competent general? Well, for Zoe, that time was now. This left Zoe in a bit of a pickle. She was the regent of the emperor, but her prestige had been flushed down the proverbial toilet. There were no more chances or quick moves she could make to save herself. The only thing she could do now was possibly remarry and find someone suitable who would take the title of regent, but not use the new title to overthrow her and her son. Unfortunately, she only had two possible choices. Leo Focas, the bad general who lost two armies, or Admiral Romanus, 
the bad admiral who abandoned the army on campaign and got thousands massacred for no reason other than his personal pride. Tough choices. She couldn't marry Romanus. The man abandoned her army and led to the biggest Roman defeat in centuries. Plus, she had just ordered his eyeballs to be burnt out of his skull. Talk about an awkward marriage proposal. Hey, sorry about almost burning your eyes out. How about I make it up to you by getting married? It would have been a match made in heaven, a true 10th century rom-com. Zoe dismissed the idea outright. Instead, she focused her attention on Leo Focas. He was, after all, a man from noble birth. He came from money and was a good-looking man. Zoe didn't just have the empire to think about, she also had her vanity. And she wanted the good-looking, rich nobleman for herself, so she drafted up the documents needed to arrange such a marriage. At the same time, she decided it was time to disband the fleet of Romanus. She sent messengers to the fleet, ordering them to disband immediately. However, Romanus looked at the messages and threw them away. If she wants to disband the fleet, she can come down here and do it herself. Romanus was not listening to anything she said or ordered. Her influence had diminished greatly, and Romanus knew it. He was not going to listen to her anymore. Zoe's time officially ran out when she went to a meeting with the Regency where every member stood against her. This was prearranged. As her son stood at the head of the council and read a written statement, Zoe was officially dismissed as head of the Regency. The rest of the council wanted her sent away to the convent, but her son stepped in and made sure she had a place in the palace, without any power or influence, of course. This may not seem like a big deal, but it was a rare moment where Constantine, now only 13 years old, stood up against his regents and won. But the question remained, who was going to replace Zoe at the head of the regency? It really came down to two men, the same two men as before, Leo Focas and Romanus. The first to act was Romanus. He entered the palace and declared himself head of the regency. Constantine VII's tutor, Theophanes, encouraged him to accept the protection of Romanus and to marry his daughter Helena. And so it was arranged. Constantine and Helena were to marry and Romanus was crowned as co-emperor. Just like that, Romanus went from imprisonment and near blindness to the co-emperor of the empire, with his daughter married to the sickly child emperor. He was set up perfectly to take over the empire and declare a new dynasty. Everything had just worked out for Romanus. All he had to do was betray his allegiance to the empire and usurp the crown from a young, sickly boy. All that was next in order to get complete control was to take out the young child emperor. It was almost expected that he would take him out, but he didn't. It's also possible that he didn't bother because the young Constantine was sickly and probably wouldn't survive long anyways. 
Why risk an assassination when you can just wait out the clock? Coins were minted with Romanus's face at the head of the coin. The writing on the coin said Romanus was in charge. To stack the deck further in his favor, Romanus appointed his young sons to the position of co-emperor. It's obvious to us a thousand years in the future, and it was obvious to everyone back then. Romanus was replacing the existing dynasty with his own. When Constantine came of age, he did nothing. He stayed back. What could he do? Even if Romanus died, he had three other brothers to compete against. Plus, he was always sick and weak. So he did what he wanted to do. He studied and learned, and he learned about everything. From ancient history and philosophy, to the very workings of the city, from economics and trade to public facilities and maintenance. He studied the traditions of the royal court and the ecclesiastics. There was one person who took this news especially hard, Leo Focus. In his mind, he had just as much claim as the head of the regency as Romanus did. He also knew if he didn't speak up and do something about it now, his window of opportunity would close forever. So Leo Focus rose up and claimed the regency for himself. He gathered an army and proclaimed himself the true leader of the regency. His army was on the other side of the Bosphorus from Constantinople, very close, but on the wrong side of the water for a siege. Leo sent messengers to all of his men across Asia to come to his aid to take the throne away from Romanus. On the other side of the water, in Constantinople, Romanus watched his competitor gather his men. He could see his army grow in size every day and thought of a way to crush his rival without plunging the entire empire into civil war. While he sat in his palace and watched as his rival's army grew on the opposite side of the water, he came up with an idea. Leo was spreading word to his men that it was he who was freeing Constantine from the authoritative rule of Romanus. So Romanus decided to counter that message. He had Constantine write a letter denouncing the actions of Leo and signed it with his royal signature. This letter couldn't be mailed out to the army. Leo would just seize it and burn it. Romanus needed a way for this letter to make it to everyone in Leo's army. Constantine drafted two letters. One was given to a priest, and the other was given to a hooker. The reason for choosing a hooker and a priest to carry the letter into Leo's camp was simple. No one would suspect a priest and a hooker. They were frequent in most military camps. The night before a battle, you want to have fun just one last time in case you died, hence the hookers. The priest came after when a soldier wanted to secure his soul a place in heaven. The priest entered the camp, found a group of Leo soldiers, and read out the letter from Constantine. Most men who heard the child emperor speak so fluently could tell he was not being held prisoner and he sure as hell didn't need rescuing from Leo. It turned most men off the campaign as soon as they heard it. Then the priest went to another group and read out the letter again. It was not long after that Leo's officers caught wind of what was going on and arrested the priest, seized the letter and burned it in his camp. Job well done, 
Leo said to his men, the plot has been foiled. But it wasn't foiled. Leo may have thought he outwitted Romanus, but he never thought that a hooker might be patrolling the camps, reading the same letter to the rest of his men. And soon enough, the army heard the words of Emperor Constantine VII, and they gave up on Leo's plot. The jig was up. By the time Leo Focas realized what was going on, his men had all but turned on him. He was now a usurper in the eyes of the law, and had to get the hell out of Dodge and fast. Leo ran. He didn't know exactly where to go, so he just kept running. It wasn't long before the soldiers caught up to him. One soldier shouted, and then another, and soon there was a mob. They chased him down, caught him, and dragged him back. The mob had grown out of control, and before anyone could really seize control of the situation, the mob pinned down Leo Focas, heated up a pair of iron rods, and burnt out both of his eyes. Focas lay there kicking and screaming and blind in both eyes. It is rumored that Romanus was quite angry with this mob justice, as only a few weeks prior it was he who was about to lose both his eyes. Romanus now had everything he needed to start his own dynasty. His daughter was married to the sickly emperor. He himself was crowned co-emperor, and all of his sons were elevated to the rank of co-emperor-in-waiting. But there was still the awkward fact that Constantine was the rightful ruler. So to further dilute his claim to the throne, an edict was passed. Patriarch Nicholas, remember him, the guy who hated Leo's fourth marriage to Zoe? Well, he's back, and he wrote an edict that condemned all fourth marriages within the church. This was not retroactively enforced, which meant that Constantine was legitimately emperor because his parents married before the edict. But anyone who tried to marry for the fourth time going forward would be considered illegitimate. But Constantine was still good, but just barely. It was a very subtle way for Romanus to make Constantine VII appear illegitimate without actually calling him illegitimate. If you look at it on paper, Constantine was surrounded. The only thing going for him was his love for Helena and his love for scholarship. His brothers-in-law were taken over the court, and one in particular, Christopher, was groomed to become the emperor himself. Constantine was left with his books. Reminds me a little of his father, who was known as the bookworm emperor. In another move to separate Constantine from his family, Romanus accused Empress Zoe of trying to poison him and had her sent away to a convent. This was a total encapsulation of poor Constantine. I almost feel bad for him except for the fact that Romanus hasn't done anything to particularly harm the young emperor, just cut him off from any support or power. Historians actually refer to Romanus as the gentle usurper, and for a good reason. But here comes another blow to young emperor Constantine. Three days before he was to turn of age and take the rightful place as a senior emperor, Romanus made him perform a ceremony. A ceremony that would ultimately strip him of his right to the throne. On September 24th, 920 CE, Emperor Constantine VII crowned his father-in-law as Caesar, 
making him the direct inheritor to the Roman Empire. The takeover was complete. Romanus now had the power to steer the imperial ship. Now that he was in charge, he dealt with a crisis on his doorstep. Something was happening to the peasants of his empire. As one catastrophe after another swept across the land, whether it be raiding Arabs or Bulgars or drought and famine, the peasants were the ones who suffered the most. When their crops failed and they couldn't feed their families, peasants sold their land for enough gold to buy them food for the winter. Unfortunately, they were homeless the next year, with nothing to live off of. This was happening on a grand scale across the empire, and the ones buying up the land were the elites. A small, wealthy class of men were buying all of the peasants' land, displacing thousands and creating a crisis that had to be fixed. Romanus took the first step and regulated the selling of peasant land. This law was a band-aid and did nothing really to solve the problem. In fact, it did nothing at all. But on paper, it shows that Romanus was trying to fix the issue. The peasants who suffered the most were the ones between Constantinople and Bulgaria. The Bulgars had invaded so far into their land that an army occupied the villages beyond the Great Walls. They didn't have to go far to fight the enemy, just walk outside of those Theodosian walls. Year after year, the Bulgars raided the countryside, plundering and raiding and besieging Roman cities. After a long siege, they finally took the city of Adrianople. Their army seemed unstoppable. When Romanus finally sent a large army to stop the Bulgars, they were massacred. And then, like every army before it, the Bulgars came to the walls of Constantinople. Impenetrable walls, so big that no army in history had ever breached them. The Bulgar Khan Simeon made a last-ditch agreement with the Arabs to send the navy up to besiege the walls from the sea. But no one came, and Simeon had no other choice. He called to negotiate. Emperor Romanus and old Patriarch Nicholas met with Khan Simeon of Bulgaria. It was a very personal meeting on a dock off the edge of the sea walls of Constantinople. The meeting was in person, and all key figures got to speak face-to-face -face and give their demands. Khan Simeon demanded that he be recognized as an equal, a Caesar of the Bulgarians. Romanus responded by heckling Simeon as a bad Christian who has disrespected the faith. And after an intense argument, Simeon agreed to lift the siege and never attacked Byzantium again. In exchange for this act, Simeon hereby referred to himself as Caesar. Now Romanus did not agree to this at all, and refused to accept Simeon as an equal. But there's no way he was going to stop Simeon from referring to himself as Caesar. Now, because of the language difference, Khan Simeon didn't call himself Caesar. He used the word Tsar. This was Romanus' response to Tsar Simeon's new title. While he's at it, he can call himself the Caliph of Baghdad. Tsar Simeon spent the rest of his life at war in the Balkans with the Serbs and the Croatians. 
He elevated the Church of Bulgaria to a patriarch, and even got the Pope in Rome to call him Emperor of the Romans. Even though Emperor Romanus denied it, the Bulgarians were becoming equal to the Greek Byzantine Empire. However, all good things must come to an end, and in 927 CE, Tsar Simeon died. The winter that followed was the coldest and longest on record in Constantinople, even colder than the winter in 717 CE, when the Arabs laid siege to the capital. The winter in 928 was so cold that crops failed all over the empire. Hundreds of thousands were going to starve, and in most places that was the case. With food shortages, that meant one thing, the rise in grain prices. The wealthy who controlled the food could make way more money exporting the grain to other nations, selling it at ten times the price. And this happens all the time in history, and it is always the peasants and lower classes who suffer. Emperor Romanus saw this disaster coming a mile away, and he stepped in to protect the people in his empire. He took control of the food distribution and enacted a policy that made sure the rich could not export the food to the highest bidder, and that every mouth was fed. As it turns out, Romanus was a very religious man, and he wanted to do the right thing. Romanus didn't want to see his people starve, especially since he was their leader. This also plays into the Byzantine Golden Age theme. It isn't because they had better weather. It is because they had better rulers. It isn't good enough to have a great emperor. You need a continuation of great emperors. Now these emperors still started wars and murdered each other. But the things they did for the stability of the empire mattered way more. At the beginning of this episode, we mentioned Romanus was from an Armenian family. The empire was spreading east, and therefore Romanus' eyes were in the east. Armenia was a huge part of the empire, and it stretched halfway between the Black Sea and Caspian Sea. And so, Romanus appointed an Armenian general to command the soldiers in the east, in the new province of Mesopotamia. In the year 931 CE, in what can only be described as a tragedy, the eldest son of Romanus, Christopher, died. This was devastating to Romanus, as this was his favorite son, the one he groomed to take over when he died. He cried great tears of sorrow that were noted by chroniclers at the time, who said, He shed tears like an Egyptian. In 933 CE, Romanus was presented with another opportunity to strengthen his family's claim to the throne. He appointed his son to the position of patriarch. This is a big move considering he was only 16 years old. This was one of those powerful positions you had to really, really want as his son. Theophylact was castrated before he could take the seat. Talk about a bold summer job to hook up for your 16-year-old son. Not only did Romanus have his son in the second highest office of the empire, he also had a direct line to God in heaven, for Romanus was starting to worry about his eternal soul. In the east, the Armenian general, John Kurakas 
won victory after victory. He was an extremely competent general who knew the lay of the land and its inhabitants very well. While the Byzantine Empire was solidifying its strength and stability, the Abbasid Caliphate was starting to deteriorate. Several smaller emirates were breaking off from the Caliphate, and John Kukuas conquered two of them. First he took the emirate of Melitene in 934 CE. The Muslim inhabitants were either driven out or forced to convert back to Christian Orthodox. The city was then filled with Greek and Armenian citizens. John Kokuos took the emirate of Kalkala and forced out their Muslim population and imported Greek and Armenian inhabitants. He wasn't just conquering new lands, he was assimilating them. Have you ever heard the saying, for every action there is an equal or greater reaction? Because this is exactly what happens. The once idle and disunited caliphate suddenly woke up and reacted to the Christian victories in Armenia. A new and extremely competent emir came to power in Mosul, named Saif al-Dawla, and he led an army against John Kurkuas, officially stemming the tide of the Romans. There were no victories between the two, but hardened lines had been drawn between the two great powers. In 940 CE, something important happened in both the capital of the empire and the caliphate. At the same time, the top generals were called back from the front lines to meet their rulers. There was a threat growing in the east that was so powerful the caliph of Baghdad called the best general back to deal with it. For now, the fighting on the Byzantine Abbasid frontier simmered. Back in Constantinople, Romanus heard of a new tribe of barbarians moving down from the north. Across the Black Sea, beyond the Crimean Peninsula, lay the great Dnieper River. This river came from the cold steppe lands to the north, and sailing down these rivers were a tribe of men known as the Kievan Rus. They were battle-hardened and looking to loot and plunder, and they had their eyes set on the Byzantine Empire. There is no doubt they had contact with the Byzantine traders who traveled north through the Dnieper River, and when they saw just how much riches these Greek men carried, they had to find out where it was coming from. In 941 CE, the first wave of Kievan Rus ships invaded the Byzantine waters. The plan was simple but risky. Arm a small detachment of ships with Greek fire and send them out to engage the enemy as fast as possible. Once they had a dozen or more ships equipped, they sailed out in the waters to intercept the Kievan Rus. It didn't take long for the enemy fleet to spot these tiny Greek ships, and they circled around like sharks, ready to pounce on their prey. The Kievan Rus wanted to capture the ships, kill the crew, and take the loot for themselves. What they got instead must have spooked the living daylights out of them. The small ships spewed streams of fire through the air, burning the ships and laying the surface of the water on fire. There was nothing like this on the planet. The Kievan Rus panicked as there was no defense against such weapons. 
Anyone who got too close sailed through the burning water, lighting the side of the ships on fire. If they jumped overboard, they jumped into pools of flames. The water filled with black smoke, red fire, and the screams of the dying. The Kievan Rus abandoned their attacks against Constantinople and regrouped on the other side of the Black Sea. Any survivor from that battle told stories that spread throughout the Kievan Rus homeland. Wow, that's that paints quite a picture. After the war against the Kievan Rus, John Korkuas returned to the fight on the eastern frontier. He picked up the fighting and was happy to see that his arch-nemesis, Saif al-Dalwa, was still occupied in Baghdad. Regaining his momentum, John Korkuas besieged the city of Aleppo, seizing many lands that hadn't belonged to the empire since the 640s. While laying siege to Aleppo, the people bargained for their freedom and traded a sacred Christian relic for their freedom. This relic was the Mandylion of Edessa, and was said to have the imprint of Jesus' face on a small square cloth. This is not to be confused with the Shroud of Turin, which was created in the early Middle Ages. This icon was much older, and was first recorded around the 3rd century in Syria. The Mandylion was the prize of all prizes. A holy relic like this would strengthen the morale of the entire empire. In 944 CE, the Mandylion was quickly shipped back to Constantinople, where it was put on display in the Hagia Sophia. During the ceremony of its unveiling, Emperor Romanus was too sick to attend, but his sons were able to show up in his place. And when the veil was revealed, it caused the audience to gasp in awe. The two sons of Romanus didn't seem to get much from the holy relic. But there was someone sitting in that audience who did. While Constantine VII looked up at the shroud with Jesus' face imprinted on it, a member from the crowd stood up and chanted, Constantine, take your rightful place as emperor. This story was most likely fabricated after the following events, but it does make for a perfect segue from one episode to the next. In our next episode, we will continue the story of the Byzantine Golden Age and follow young Constantine as he finally stands up and takes his rightful place at the head of the empire. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.